The first problem we discussed in class was named head and clouds. So today we're gonna talk about arousal emotion. But first of all, let me make a little bit of context and I'll read the text we had in Canvas and then we'll discuss it. Somewhere in southwestern Canada near Vancouver, a 3,000 feet long and some 210 feet up in the air, a wobbly suspension bridge hangs over a mountain stream. This bridge, the Capilano Suspension Bridge, was the scene of a very elegant experiment conducted in 1974. A very attractive interviewer stood on the bridge. She would ask men passing by to write a short drama about a young man in a picture she would show. Having concluded their short stories, the interviewer would ask the man if she would like her to explain the experiment in more detail at a later time. She would tear off one edge of her paper, upon which she would jot her name and telephone number. The same experiment was also conducted atop another bridge. This bridge was made of solid wood, with a much broader walkway, shorter and firmer than the Capilano Bridge, and hung only 10 feet over a shallow stream. On analysis of the stories, it turned out that the stories of the men atop of the Capilano Bridge contained more sexual content than those written by the men on the other, lower bridge. Moreover, 50% of the men on Capilano Bridge rang the interviewer back for more information, while the same percentage for the men on the lower bridge was amounted to only 13%. We are all familiar with this situation, but still, the, the results were, were crazy. And that drives us to our first question. What is the relation between arousal and emotion? First of all, we gotta define what is arousal and what is emotion. We can say that arousal is the state of being activated, either physiologically or psychologically. And emotion is the mental state caused by stimuli. And going back to the question, uh, what's the relation then between arousal and emotion? The answer is easy, it depends on the theory you like best. We're gonna talk about three different ones, and I'm gonna explain them chronologically. First theory. The James Lang theory of emotion. This theory was published in the late 19th century, and the authors, James and Lang, said that the experience of emotion is the interpretation of a physiological response, such an arousal, for example, and each emotion has its own physiological patterns. A sentence that makes this so clear is You don't cry because you're sad, you're sad because you cry. Also, this theory emphasizes the physiological arousal as the key, in that the cognitive processes alone would not be sufficient evidence for an emotion. If we could draw a process of this experience, it would be, first of all, the stimuli, the event, then leads us to the physiological response. And then we have an interpretation of this physiological arousal, this physiological response, and that leads to the emotion. Okay, that was the first theory, and it had so many problems. I'm gonna talk about four problems for this theory. One, there are too many emotions if we have to give each one a different arousal patterns. Two, there are too many emotions that have the same symptoms. Let me tell you an example, if you're playing hockey, probably your heart rate will be so fast and you will be sweating, and that will happen too if you see a dead body, for example, but the emotion, of course, is not the same. 3. 
This is an important problem. It lacks of a cognitive component. What does it mean? That we don't pay attention to beliefs, knowledge, and thoughts. We only pay attention to the physiological arousal. And four, every time you have a physiological response, they say, James and Lang, that your brain gives an emotion. But it isn't true at all, because as we saw in the experiments, you can have been artificially aroused if you got uh, epinephrine injected, and you are aware of it, you are aware of your arousal, and you don't have any particular emotion. In conclusion, this theory was dismissed. So it wasn't a good day for James and Lang when in 1927, these two men, Cannon and Bard, published a new theory. Second theory. Of course, their main goal was to deny James Lang theory, because, as we know, many different emotions have the same patterns of physiological response. Thus, physiological response is not the only thing, there's something else there. And what is more, physiological responses don't appear always immediately. For example, when someone suddenly scares you at home or in the street, you instantly feel fear or surprise you jump and the physiologic responses come later. Also, if we talk about physiologic patterns such as heartbeat acceleration or sweating, this is something that happens either when we see a big snake and when we just do workout in the gym, as we discussed before. Then we can affirm that physiological arousal can lead to different emotions. For this theory, if we want to draw a process, it would be, first of all, the event stimuli, of course, that would lead to a physiological response plus emotion, but both happened at the same time. In other words, the physiological reactions are not dependent upon the emotional reaction, nor vice versa. But suddenly, 40 years later, two men came into play with the last theory of today. They were Sachter and Singer. Third theory. Uh, this theory is called the two-factor theory or the cognitive labeling theory. Alright, very cool, but why two-factor? This is because either physiological arousal and cognitive interpretation of arousal are essential. If we ever become physiologically aroused, we don't feel any specific emotion until we label it. That is to say, find a reason for the situation such as fear or anger. We can put it in other words too. Emotions depend on a person's judgments about what their body have changed. And one more time, if we have to draw a process of this theory, it would be the event or stimulus that leads to the physiological response. But after that, there is a label. There is a phase in which we identify a reason for the response. And finally, after we have labeled it, we have an emotion. I hope this theory is more or less clear, but in case we are going to establish the main difference with this theory and the first one, the one that was published almost 80 years before, the James Lang theory. Well, so in the latest theory, in the Sachter and Singer's theory, the physiological arousal does not provide the label for emotion. Cognition does. And cognition was the main problem in the James Lang theory. Of course, this research is not so new and so updated, so it had problems too. And the main problem was that replications of the experiment uh, weren't always very successful. 
We still need a lot of research, but for example, in the last centuries, there was a big uh, improvement of the um, of the neuroscience. And things of that, we've discovered that emotion don't arise at once. It's a super fast circuit in your brain. And we should pay a lot of attention, although we are not studying biology yet, to the amygdala. Because apparently it performs a primary role in the processing of memory, decision making, but also emotional responses. It's so great that now we can explain the relation between arousal and emotion. But if we read again the, the experiment done in the Capilano Bridge and how the participants interact with the attractive interviewer, we might have a question. What is the relation between arousal and later behavior? And that's what we're gonna talk about now. The first term we have to highlight is the misattribution of arousal. It is the process whereby people make a mistake in assuming what is causing them to feel aroused. For example, what could happen in the Capilano Bridge, when people actually were experiencing physiological responses related to fear because they were very high, they were in a dangerous situation, people mislabeled those responses as romantic arousal. And that's why men needed to crave from primary necessities and make some contact with the interviewer. Good, we know there can be a misattribution of arousal, but how can that happen? Well, so here comes into play the Zillman's excitation transfer model. To understand this model, we have to focus on the term residual excitation. We can see it in the Capilano Bridge experiment, also in the Love at First Fright experiment, uh, the one in, in the roller coasters, experiment that was conducted by Meston and Frolic, by the way. Well, in case you don't remember, let me explain it so fast. A man who finished a trip in a roller coaster and they weren't with a romantic partner, they rated higher the photograph of an attractive woman, rated higher than those who didn't experience the roller coaster trip. So the residual excitation is that excitement left we have after experiencing an intense situation. And this residual excitation can lead to the misattribution of arousal. To make a clear statement about the Zillman's excitation transfer model, we can say that it says that the residual excitations from a stimulus amplifies the excitatory responses of a following stimulus, but, important, not necessarily producing the same emotion. There is an example in the football environment. Uh, the excitement in football matches can lead to a violent fight between rival hooligans, but of course the emotion you have in the stadium while the match is going on is not the same emotion as you have when it's over. I'll try not to be redundant, but during this period of residual excitement that an individual is exposed to another emotion-provoking situation, they may misattribute the residual excitement to the current situation. In this theory, it was also said that the expression of aggression, for example in, in football matches or any other emotion, is a function of three things. First one, a learned aggressive behavior. Two an arousal or excitations from another source, and third, the person's interpretation of the arousal state, such that an aggressive response seems appropriate. But that's another discussion. The publication of this model drove Sachter and Singer to say that when people are uncertain about how they feel, their emotional state is sometimes determined by the reactions of others around. 
but be careful because this level of physiological arousal can be too intense. Here's come the example. If you have the arousal of working out at the gym and then you're driving back home, you come across someone who's angry, that will make you angry too. It's the same that what would happen in a football stadium we talked before. However, of course, we have a but. Everything has a but. This excitation transfer is unlikely to occur when the individual causally connects the residual states of excitation to the prior inducing source. That means that if you are aware of your arousal and you can connect it with something you lived before, then the excitation transfer just doesn't happen. Moral, be always aware about what's going on around you. We can also illustrate this with the third experiment uh, by Aaron and Dutton about electroshocks and attractive women. Well, so when subjects found out that they were gonna get a strong shock and they had an attractive girl present, they reported significantly less fear than when no potential sexual object was present. Thus, we could say that they matched their anxiety with sexual arousal instead of matching it with the fear of being electroshocked. This is a little summary about what we learned in the head and clothes problem in the first one about the excitation model. I wish it has been helpful for those who are running, for those who are cleaning the house or for those who are just working. And see you in the next episode.